Judges 19, a chapter we wish was not in the Bible. You'll see in a minute what I'm talking about. That's our text, Judges chapter 19. Open your Bible, follow along on your device, please. The topic, to save himself, a Levite delivers his concubine to a mob to be sexually assaulted. Then he dismembers her body and sends one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Title of our message, an affair to dismember. Let's have, let's have a word of prayer. Uh, I will become more sensitive as the study unfolds. <laughs> Father, we do thank you for this chapter, and though um, we might make light of it in one sense, it is perhaps the darkest image in the scripture. Uh, these next two chapters, Lord, uh, the inhumane treatment of human beings and just, uh, just everything that we're going to deal with, Lord, really is a challenge to us. I pray that we would find application in our own lives, as always, that you would speak to us, minister to us through this living text. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. As a kid, I was strangely fascinated by the Good Sam Club logo on the bumper of RVs. If you're not familiar with the logo, it's the cartoon head of a weirdly smiling man topped by a halo. Any Good Sam Club members in here? Are you not willing to admit it? Oh, there you go, right on. That's quite a few. It's doubtful you haven't heard of it, but just in case, it's an association of RV owners, quote, focused on making RVing safer and more enjoyable and on saving members money through club-endorsed benefits and services. So it's the Costco of RV. Being the biblically deprived child that I was, I thought Sam was the name of the guy who started the club. I'm not sure when I realized that Sam was short for Samaritan and that the club's name comes from the Bible parable of the Good Samaritan, which tells of a traveling Samaritan who risked his own life and livelihood to help a Jew along the road who had been robbed and beaten. The parable was told following a Q&A session Jesus had with a Jewish theologian who they called a lawyer. Jesus asked him to summarize what the Bible says a person must do to inherit eternal life. He answered Jesus saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. When the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, the Lord told the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was revolutionary in many ways, not the least of which in that Jews despised Samaritans, they would certainly not stop to help one. So the idea that a Samaritan would stop to help a Jew was almost unthinkable. But when he did stop to help, it wasn't because the Jew was his neighbor, it was because the Samaritan was acting as neighbor to the Jew. And the parable establishes that it isn't so much a matter of who is my neighbor as it is my being a neighbor to everyone, thereby showing my invisible love for God through my visible love for them. You see, the lawyer was trying to say, who's my neighbor? Who are the few people that I really need to risk my life for? Uh, is it my next door neighbor? Is it my family members? How can I limit the group of people that you're talking about? And Jesus turned it all around and said, it's your everyone's neighbor. That's the idea. You're not to make a smaller group, but the group just became infinitely larger. During the time of the judges, there weren't lawyers, but there were Levites. One of their duties was the teaching of the law. 
Among all the Jews, a well-versed Levite ought to be the one most likely to act like the good Samaritan. If there was a bad Samaritan's club, the Levite in our chapter was its founder. When it comes time to act by loving his neighbor as himself, he commits an epic fail choosing self-preservation. Since loving God with all that we've got and with all that we are and being neighbors who show God's love to everyone is still in force, we can go through this chapter asking the following two questions. Number one, are you merely going through the motions of loving your neighbor as yourself? And number two, are you willing to go to the extremes of loving your neighbor as yourself? Let's take a look first of all at going through the motions in verses 1 through 21. Like you, probably, I like to check the parental guidelines that are posted for movies before watching them. They have a few categories, and then they rate the film in each of them, providing a brief summary of what you're going to see there. I feel compelled to provide pastoral guidelines for the story we're about to read. Alcohol, drugs, and smoking, moderate. Two men spend the better part of four days feasting, involving wine that gives them a buzz. Violence and gore, extreme. A woman's body is dismembered into 12 pieces, which are then sent to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Frightening and intense scenes, extreme. A group of perverted men threaten violence against the occupants of a house. Sex and nudity, off the chart, extreme. A woman is gang raped at night and then left for dead. This is a story that you wouldn't watch if it was a movie and you checked the guidelines. We're going to get the most out of it as we focus on the Levite that we meet in verse 1. And so we start, it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now this story took place prior to the raising up of the judges, pretty soon after the death of Joshua. These chapters at the end of Judges are not in chronological order. They actually occur prior than the time of the judges. There was no human king, and the tribes were not submitting to the rule of God as their king. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. A concubine was a woman with less status than a wife who was typically brought into the household when the wife could not bear children. In this story, the concubine's status is somewhat unclear. First of all, there's no mention of a wife in addition to her. Second of all, though she is called a concubine, the Levite is mentioned as her husband. And third of all, the Levite is mentioned as the son-in-law of the woman's father and he as the father-in-law. So there's some uh, miscommunication here about what her status was. Sometimes she seems like a wife, even though she was a concubine. Now, whatever their relationship was, there was serious marital discord because in verse two we read, his concubine played the harlot against him, went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Now, before you judge her, come to a conclusion, you need to know that there are different ways of translating the words played the harlot. It can mean that she committed sexual sin, but certain Greek translations say that it means she became angry with him, resulting in her fleeing to her father's house. She therefore may have left after what we would call a domestic dispute in which the Levite was also to blame. In verse 3, her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. 
concubine brought him into the house. They resolved their differences. This reads like a typical occurrence between them, like an abuse cycle that is repeating itself. Concubine brought him into the house, and dad was glad to meet him. But that can mean he gladly welcomed him. Certainly, this wasn't the first time he had ever met the Levite. Verse 4, now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. And then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, please be content to stay all night. Let your heart be merry. And when the man stood up to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. And so this is an episode of hospitality gone wild. They're just going to keep eating and drinking day after day. Maybe the father-in-law was lonely. Who knows? Uh, you've been to situations like that where people just don't, they won't let you leave. You know, you keep thinking of excuses or reasons. I always have people call me ahead of time. I say, hey, uh, call me at 315 and then, oh, 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 okay, thank you. No, I'm just, I'm making that up. Maybe. We can at least assume they were getting buzzed, if not drunk, by the use of the words, let your heart be merry. This is code in the Old Testament for wine making your heart merry, the Bible says. And so they're having these feast days, and they're going on and on. And then in verse 8, then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart, but the young woman's father said, please refresh your heart. So they delayed until the afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here, that your heart may be made merry. Tomorrow you can go your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed and came opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with him were two, two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. Late afternoon travel could leave you out at dark. That was never a good idea in those days. There were too many dangers and it limited your options. Travel like that and you were probably going to need a good Samaritan. So this is not a good decision on the part of the Levite. In verse 11, it says, They were near Jabus and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Please, let us turn, uh, turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. They passed by and went their way and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Now Rama was also out. It was too dark to get there safely, and so Gibeah was their only choice. Don't you kind of get creeped out when, if you're traveling and you don't have reservations and you get someplace and you find there's no hotel rooms and, and, and then you have to stay in the one place you wouldn't have picked? It's kind of creepy. You don't know. Some of these hotels, I remember a few years ago, well, it's been a lot. I always say a few years ago. It's probably a decade or more. Uh, we had to go back down to San Bernardino. I grew up in San Bernardino, lived there my whole life, and we were going to an event. It was, I think, the anniversary, the 35th anniversary of Calvary Chapel of San Bernardino, where I was before I came here. And so I made reservations in a hotel that used to be pretty nice on Hospitality Lane. And uh, I knew I was in trouble because they had bulletproof glass between me and the 
and the, uh, you know, the, uh, whoever it is, the person behind the glass, <laughs> the clerk. Uh, and then the rooms hadn't been fumigated in a while, if you know what I mean. And, and so it was an interesting night. Gino and I took turns uh, sleeping. But anyway, so now they had to go to Gibeah. And uh, so they turned aside there to go into Lodge of Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend that night. Everyone's home was a hotel in these days. If a stranger came, it was a big deal. In that culture, hospitality was of supreme importance. It was unheard of that no one would take this individual in. And that should have been a clue to him that there were problems ahead. Not much he could do about it at this point, but it was a, it was a significant clue. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? So he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord. But there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant and for the young man who is with your servant, there's no lack of anything. And the old man said, please be our peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house, gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Now, this isn't exactly the parable of the Good Samaritan, but this old man certainly showed the Levite proper hospitality. And he did it willingly and at some cost to himself. So we would say kudos to him at this point. On the other hand, we have to recognize this was fairly easy and this was what was expected. This was minimal. The fact that others refused to show hospitality makes the old man stand out somewhat, uh, somewhat, but he was only doing what was required and customary. So it was good, but there was nothing extravagant about it. He was merely going through the motions, and I can say that because in a moment we're going to see that he was not really one to risk his own life for the sake of another. He was acting like a good Samaritan, but not to the extent that the good Samaritan did. And thus the story gives us an opportunity to gauge our own good Samaritaning, if I can coin a word. We can start by looking at our behavior in our church. The Bible tells us in Galatians 6, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so a Christian is charged with doing good and especially within the church or through the church. That's a broad command. It would involve things like regularly supporting the church financially and through serving. It would involve regular support for missions and missionaries. And then there would be special needs like relief for the hurricane victims that we are making you aware of or annually Operation Christmas Child. And then there are individual needs that God might lay on your heart as you fulfill the role of Good Samaritan to someone in need that you encounter. It's not unusual to come to church and uh, encounter someone and have a, a conversation with them and find out that they have some need. Or maybe even the Holy Spirit ministers to you and says, hey, I want you to go over and talk to that person, get to know that person because I want to do a work. And so there are a lot of ways that we can do good in the household of God. Christians are one big good Sam club for sure doing the minimum 
but then going beyond as the Lord leads. And so this part of the story gives us a chance to gauge ourselves. Lord, what am I doing to meet the minimum standards of hospitality and doing good? And what can I do beyond that? So let that sink in later on when we pray. Secondly, are you willing to go to extremes of loving your neighbor as yourself? That'll be the closeout of the story from verses 22 through 30. I came across this rather expressive quote regarding loving others. It seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body and wrap it around another person so that I feel that I am that other person. And all the longings that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he or she were me. That's pretty interesting. It's a pretty good way of understanding loving others as if it was myself. It was supremely lived out by Jesus, who quite literally took upon himself our flesh, a body of flesh like ours, adding humanity to his deity in order to take our place on the cross. Now, it's not my purpose to deride us this morning for failing to meet this high standard. And if I did, I would be first in failure. And so that's, that's an easy point to make. I don't want everybody to just leave here feeling bad because we fall short. Of course we fall short. But it does provide an opportunity to be reminded that the Christian who loves like Jesus is out on the edge of a dangerous battlefield where supernatural forces are seeking to destroy human lives. It's a risky thing, therefore, to love others as yourself. It's good to be challenged, and that's what this story is going to do. And so verse 22, and they all lived happily ever after. Oh, no, I'm sorry. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the man who came to our house that we may know him carnally. All of a sudden, this tale of hospitality sounds like we've passed into a futuristic dystopian world in which roving gangs rob and rape at night. It's Mad Max Gibeah is what this is. This is crazy. I mean, we had marital reconciliation. We had fun feasting. Now we've got hospitality. And the next thing you know, everything's on its head. And remember, too, this was happening closer to the death of Joshua, not well after it. It reveals just how quickly a society can deteriorate. If this all sounds eerily familiar, it's because something very similar happened in Sodom during the time of Abraham. The difference is that Sodom was a city of non-believers where you can expect this, whereas Gibeah was Israeli. These were Benjamites. It's simply awful when God's people are no better than non-believers. Verse 23, but the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Now, kudos again to the old man. It must have been frightening to step outside and face that gang. I mean, think of it. Put yourself in the story. A bunch of wild, weird, Mad Max rapists are outside your house banging on the door, and you go out say, outside and you say, don't do this, and here's some reasons not to do it. He appealed to their sense of community, reminding them that a stranger lodged in a house had the expectation of safety. And he appealed to their sense of basic humanity, calling their desire an outrage. And so, great, so far. But what he says next is definitely not in the thinking of a good Samaritan. I think he should have quit while he was ahead. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. 
Humble them. Do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. Are you letting that sink in a little bit? Don't do this vile thing to this man. Do it to my virgin daughter instead and to his concubine. And so the old man is revealing the value, the relative value he places on human life. He valued his own life above all. He was not willing to risk it defending his guest. Instead, he offered the lesser lives of his own daughter and of the concubine. He seemed a little concerned about his reputation as a person of hospitality. He didn't want anything to happen to his guest. He didn't want to get a bad reputation. Hey, this guy went over to the old man's house and they ravaged him all night. Well, it wouldn't bother them if he did a, his daughter and the concubine? I guess not, not in that society. It's important that we understand that the original Good Samaritan in Jesus' parable risked his life to help the needy Jewish traveler. It wasn't just a, a little bit costly for him. It, it could have cost him everything. Think of those who hid and harbored Jews during World War II, such as Corrie Ten Boom, whose story is told in The Hiding Place. This is a very serious situation when we talk about hospitality at this level. And so verse 25, but the men would not heed him. So the man, and this is the Levite, took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. The Levite had brought all this upon the old man's house. Taking matters into his own hands, he decided to thrust his concubine out the door. As I said, this story started as a domestic dispute with a happy, festive reconciliation. But that was only on the surface. It's clear that the Levite had no real love for this concubine. She was to him now an object to be used as he saw fit for his own preservation. If you're to love your neighbor, a stranger, more than yourself, how much more ought you to love your wife? In this case, concubine who served as his wife. We must further conclude that the Levite had no real love for God. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the visible evidence of your invisible love for God. And so he might give lip service to the law as a Levite, but he denied it by his actions. Self-preservation at the cost of another's life is just not love. Consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He desired to avoid the cross. Who wouldn't? But we cannot fathom him acting to preserve himself at the expense of even one human life. Think of some of the people Jesus died for. Think of the dregs of society, wicked, evil individuals. And Jesus said, I die uh, so that all men might be drawn to the cross. Not all are saved, but Jesus didn't put relative value on different human lives. He didn't even bargain with fa the Father. He didn't say, well, I'll die for some of these people, but not all. You don't want me to die for this guy, do you? He just died for the sins of the world. I'm saying that the old man and the Levite should have risked their own lives. Reminds me of those riddles, usually about lifeboats cast off a sinking ship where there just isn't enough room to save everybody. You're told a little bit about each of the possible survivors, their history or their job or their career, and then you're asked to make a choice. Who would you save? Three people are in a lifeboat adrift at sea. They have four cigarettes, but no matches or lighters. How can they each smoke a cigarette? They throw one cigarette overboard, making the lifeboat a cigarette lighter. Get it? Yes. Thank you. 
Anyway, the normal lifeboat dilemmas always include folks who seem undeserving. You know, there's like the president of the United States or is he deserving or undeserving? Anyway, depends on your political views, I guess. There's, you know, the head of a country. There's the world's greatest genius. There's the guy who's going to find the cure for cancer. And then there's other people who I won't mention that, that they, you know, normally would have a less, lesser value on their life. And there's no right answer. It's designed to see how you value life and different human lives. That's, that's what they're all about. If you're a believer, the solution is to give your spot to a non-believer. That's the key information you need to know. If anybody asks you that, say, hey, I need to ask you a question. Are there any Christians in this group? And if you're one of them, then it's, you say, well, I'm going to stay behind. I, you know, Everybody else can make a decision. My decision is to give up my place for someone else because that's what Jesus did for me. And then everybody gets saved and they all go down on the ship because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's, that's the decision there. Now, this story, it's not about human trafficking, but I want to mention this in the context of the concubine's inhumane treatment. Trafficking women and children for sexual exploitation is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. Despite the fact international law and the laws of 134 countries criminalize sex trafficking, at least 21 million adults and children are bought and sold worldwide into commercial sexual servitude, forced labor, or bonded labor. About 2 million children are exploited every year in the global commercial sex trade. Almost 6 in 10 identified trafficking survivors were trafficked for sexual exploitation. Women and girls make up 98% of victims of trafficking for sexual exploitation. This isn't just a problem in the developing world. It's a problem right here in the U.S. Our Justice Department estimates that upwards of 17,000 people are trafficked into the country every year. 2016 Global Slavery Index estimates that including U.S. citizens and immigrants, close to 60,000 people are victims of human trafficking. Uh, back in 2000, there were approximately 250,000 American children and youth who were at risk for sex trafficking. There are a number of Christian organizations you can support that are working to end human trafficking. And so think about that. Verse 26, then the woman came as the day was dawning, fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. You know what this tells us? It tells us that the Levite went to bed. After he shoved her out, he slept while she was being sexually assaulted and did nothing to come to her aid. Verse 27, when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He didn't first thing go out to search for her. You get the impression from this that he had his coffee, he had a little breakfast, he read the news. He'd already abandoned her in his own mind. And notice too, he is now referred to as her master and not as her husband. He is now the master. It's a clue that he had devalued her life. If she's just a slave, then maybe it's all right for her to be treated this way. Verse 28, and he said to her, get up and let's go. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. It's actually not clear whether she was dead already or merely unconscious. His words are haunting. Get up, let's go. If you've been the victim of a sexual assault, all of this may be dredging up emotions. 
we want to represent Jesus to you and his compassion and his healing. We don't always know how to do that without making you feel worse. But know that you are loved and that the Lord's grace and mercy is available to you. Could things get any worse? Well, in the time of the judges, the answer to that is always yes. Verse 29, when he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Once again, it's actually unclear if she was dead already or merely unconscious at the beginning of this. There was no mourning for her. There was no funeral for her. There was no burial for her. Her body was now an object to be used as the Levite saw fit. Why send a piece of her to each of the 12 tribes? Personal revenge, verse 30. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. Now we're going to see in chapter 20 that the Levite precipitated a civil war that got a ton of people killed, all for his own self-promotion and self-esteem. He, had, he, he was the cause of this in one sense. He thrust her out, caused her to be abused, uh, and now his honor is at stake because they did this to him, and he wants the Benjamites to pay for it. As one charged with teaching God's law, the Levite knew it was summarized in loving the Lord and thereby loving your neighbor as yourself. However, the Levite was unwilling to take neighbor love to its logical, spiritual extreme. He quite obviously loved himself more than God and therefore had no real love for others whatsoever. whatsoever. Man, I'm just losing it this morning. If you're a first responder, or if you're in the military, you've committed to good Samaritaning. You regularly risk your lives for strangers. You are our heroes. Most of us never face a life and death Samaritan's choice, and I'm thankful for that. I don't think we should go out looking for it. It may present itself, but uh, if it does, hopefully our invisible love for God would find expression in visible, practical, sacrificial love for others. And as I said earlier, as an application, all of us can up our game by getting more and more involved helping others. First, in the household of faith, as I explained, but also out in the world as well. And so today, as we reflect on these things, ask the Lord, whose neighbor am I? And then act upon what he tells you.